The South and her, the land and salt winds, moved her through Charlton streets as if they were a mobile sapling, with the gait of a well-loved colored woman whose lover was the horizon in any direction. Indigo imagined tough winding branches growing from her braids, deep green leaves rustling by her ears, doves and macaws flirting above the nests they'd fashioned in the secret, protected niches way high up in her headdress. When she wore this Carolinian costume, she knew the cobblestone streets were really polished oyster shells, covered with pine needles and cotton flowers. She made herself, her world, from all that she came from. She looked around her at the wharf. If there was nobody there but white folks, she made them black folks. In the grocery, if the white folks were buying up all the fresh collars and okra, she made them disappear and put the produce on the vegetable wagons that went round to the colored. There wasn't enough for indigo in the world she'd been born to, so she made up what she needed, what she thought the black people needed. Access to the moon, the power to heal, daily visits with the spirits. That was an excerpt from Entisake Shange's novel, Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo. Hey y'all, welcome to the Activism and Education Critical Pedagogies podcast. Before we get critical, let's hear who the members of the Critical Pedagogies group are. Hey, I'm Alicia, and I'm interested in intersections of healing and justice, and I mostly grew up on an ocean island. I'm Ryan, I'm a Cali boy, and I'm studying learning. Hey, I'm Mia, and when I'm not thinking of ways to improve STEM education, I draw comics and listen to hip hop. Hi, I'm Minin, and I'm an aspiring liberatory educator with a love of hot Cheetos and 90s neo-soul. Hi, I'm Larissa. I'm a student reading across sound, music, and Africana studies. I think about the ways in which we accidentally reproduce the violences we seek to dismantle in our societies. I'm invested in exploring forms of imagining and realizing better worlds that are neither ethically bankrupt nor stand into ideological inaction. Activism and Education is a class with Dr. Crystal Strong at Penn's Grad School of Education. It's a class that bridges activist theory with practice. For many of us, it's been a space to have dialogue that we haven't been able to have anywhere else at Penn. The majority of the class was student-driven. While Dr. Strong designed the first few weeks of the class, we as students designed the remaining weeks. Together as a class, we generated themes and split up into working groups to explore these themes. Our working group has been exploring critical pedagogies. We'd like to give you some insight into our learning, thinking, and practices we developed over the course of the semester. So today we thought we'd have a dialogue with each other to reflect on how the classes went. So we had a number of intentions going in that we wanted to put into play. Mm. Um, the first one is working with praxis. Paula Freire writes, liberation is a praxis the action and reflection of people upon their world in order to transform it. So essentially just um, combining reflection and action. Yeah, not just in the head and not just out in the world. Right. What you do has meaning. Exactly. Mm. So that was our first intention. We also had an intent to disrupt power dynamics that are typically present in the classroom. these can be, you know, between professors and students, grad students and undergrads, etc. Um, and this intent drove how we plan the activities, how we set up the classroom space, 
and how we envision timing for our sessions. Um, we also, we used a heavy theoretical grounding and we were working most centrally with bell hooks yeah. and Paolo Freire. Yeah. And you've heard us use this phrase, critical pedagogies, a lot. And we want to emphasize that it can exist in other forms, but Hooks and Freire were the primary theorists and pedagogues we drew upon. Um, critical pedagogy can pretty much be defined as an educational approach of questioning and challenging systems of social oppression. It's frequently described as an approach that seeks to critique through praxis the banking model of education, which Brazilian theorist Paulo Freire describes as follows. Education thus becomes an act of depositing, in which the students are the depositories and the teacher is the depositor. Instead of communicating, the teacher issues communiques and makes deposits which the students patiently receive, memorize and repeat. This is the banking concept of education, in which the scope of action allowed to the students extends only as far as receiving, filing and storing the deposits. Yeah, so I feel like for our class, we really wanted to take this theoretical basis and take some of the key terms from Freire and then like make that the grounding for what we did. We wanted to live out critical pedagogy. So I remember we started with just thinking about limit situations. Paulo Freire writes, people exist in a dialectical relationship between the determination of limits and their own freedom. Freire goes on to say, as they separate themselves from the world, as they locate the seat of their decisions in themselves and in their relations with the world and others, people overcome the situations which limit, the limit situations. I think for all of us, we wanted to invite people to think about oppression. Yeah. Hooks, Hooks also talks about um, something she calls self-actualization and pairs that with the promotion of well-being. So she talks a lot about um, bringing in a space where teachers also are empowered to, um, to participate in vulnerability, which encourages students to take risks as well. Right, so Hooks talks about self-actualization through well-being and vulnerability mm -hmm. and then processing the limit situations together, which everyone was asked to participate in yeah. allowed us to kind of share in a space of vulnerability and risk taking yeah. in a contained, um, you know, choiceful way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, along those same lines, we kind of wanted to um, invite everyone to bring their full selves into mm. the classroom, which is something that, um, you know, both as students and teachers are not usually afforded the opportunity to do mm -hmm. um, and so we really wanted to invite everyone including ourselves to be freer in academic spaces than we usually are yeah yeah and I think um, something we were confronting from the beginning was how to contextualize critical pedagogies is not just something that happens in an academic space not just something mm -hmm. that happens in a classroom so when we were coming at this we we're thinking about third spaces about critical pedagogies that are enacted in after-school programs that are enacted at the home that are enacted in community centers or literally in activism in order to try to put some of these theories into into practice we developed um, lesson plans for, for both of the sessions that we were leading both of the classes that we were leading thinking about how to do that um, one of the places we started was thinking about space so we 
normally have a classroom that's set up with desks that all face the front of the classroom. And we took all of the desks to the side and reorganized the space so that everyone was sitting in a circle facing in towards the center. And, and folks actually didn't even use computers during the class. Um, we didn't have any teacher space, so there was no kind of front of the classroom. Um, and in, in our second class, we actually also had options for our classmates and for ourselves to sit on blankets or on yoga mats on the floor. To start our class, we had our very first class. We had everybody write out a limit situation, which we talked about earlier. Um, and to do that, we asked everyone to journal to themselves about a limit situation that they'd experienced in their life, um, and then to share what they were comfortable sharing on our, our class sort of web page, basically. I don't know what to say. I'm stuck in the in-between and the que gloria vivió. This home, this thin edge of barbed wire, pricks at me, me un chico. A veces I can't speak, I can't write, I can't do. I'm everything that I was supposed to be, and all that I feel is the waste of los sacrificios de mi mami, abuelita y tía on me. Me dijeron que tenía que hablar correcta, that I needed to be white to succeed, that I needed to be para ser líder and to represent nuestra gente. What was it all worth if for all I'm left with is loathing and guilt and the mixed up files of everything I'm not and everything I should have been? I know his name. I know his birthday. I know his country of origin. I know how he and my mother met, but I have never seen my father's face. I don't like to say that my father's absence is a limit situation. That would be giving him too much credit. But I recognize that my father's absence can limit how I experience some life events. However, Ferrari also says that confronted by this universe of themes and dialectic contradictions, persons take equally contradictory positions. Some work to maintain the structures, others to change them. Perhaps some of my limit acts include me saying, I was talking to my parents when I mean my mother and her sister, my tia, who has been there by my mother's side since day one. Limit acts include replacing father-daughter dance at my quinceañera for a mother-daughter dance instead. But perhaps the reason why this doesn't feel like a limit is twofold. I don't feel as though I missed out on anything that dads usually teach their kids. And two, being raised in a single parent household was more common than not in the spaces where I was both a student and a teacher. March 31st, 2011 was the day I fell and struck my head, sustaining a traumatic brain injury that would last longer than anyone expected. Unable to function like I was used to, or simply get out of bed by myself, school quickly became a place of misery for me. Surrounded by constant movement, bright hallways, and loud sounds, I could barely manage to open my eyes, let alone learn. I was forcibly placed on medical leave my first year in high school, and had to defer my graduation in order to heal. After seven years of countless IV drips, over 28 different prescription medications, physical and cognitive therapy, bio-neurofeedback, electric muscular stimulation, acupuncture, pain management, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and countless reconfigurations to my life, I continue to live with daily chronic head pain. Despite the dream of one day being fully pain-free, I continue to slowly push myself and find that the process of self-discovery to be extremely challenging 
but absolutely necessary. So as you can see, these limit situations touched on very vulnerable topics. So when we opened our class, we wanted to set a tone. We just wanted to open by saying that, um, firstly, critical pedagogies tend towards collectivity, um, and that we realize that this can be uncomfortable, even violent for some people, and we invite anyone in the room to step out of activities um, if that's your experience, and also to invite recess from activities to speak bravely through these experiences. Um, so this space is ours to uh, form and foster how we want. Then we created the space for people to unpack these limit situations that they shared. So now that you've had time to familiarize or re-familiarize yourself to what everyone shared, we would like you to connect with someone, either one person or a few people whose posts resonated with you and just sort of discuss whatever comes up. Why it resonated, any connections that you're having with critical pedagogy, how you felt while you were writing it, anything that feels comfortable sharing and we have markers around the room so that when you feel ready you can sort of write on the board any themes that come up during your conversation. And after our small groups we came back together as a class and posed a question. Considering the readings what Freire explored, what you explored, if you think about this activity, what did you notice? I was going to say though that I think it's also interesting though and that my group didn't leave and I think that considering that most of our conversation was discussing things like home. Um, and I think we also started off our conversation discussing how we did not feel comfortable in certain spaces being as vulnerable. I just think that that's an interesting sort of tidbit to sort of consider and like what gives people the freedom and feeling like they should move or go in between spaces and then what makes people feel like they can't. Um, and so yeah, that's all. <laughs> I was I was just gonna say like something that came up for me that I was so surprised about was like uh, having this click moment where I'm like, oh you need to interrogate yourself because I am so invested in theory. I really, really am. And it's like the first time that I'm like, actually this is so inconsistent with your personal politics. I need to work that out. And mm. this is like a huge block that's been broken for me because I've been completely unable to write for like two months. And I think this will be like very, very clearing. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like kind of an obvious thing, but it really genuinely did not come up until 10 minutes ago. Mm. 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 Yeah, um, let's, sorry. I don't share much. Uh, yeah, it was interesting, at least as like being part of the group who like helped create. Like it was also still like an uncomfortable experience even for me, at least even just like writing down, um, kind of speaking to that because I had like some canned limit situations that I felt I could share that um, wouldn't that wouldn't be, I guess, as authentic or as vulnerable because of feeling that discomfort of in this space. Um, and am I still like getting to know like everyone in this space, like negotiating that, all right, like, am I gonna be, am I gonna, I remember like writing my post, deleting it, writing it, deleting it, writing it, deleting it over and over again. Um, so 
even for me, it was, and, I, and I'll be honest, I'm still like, still feeling like, I still feel, I guess viscerally, just like, cause it is uncomfortable for me to share, um, but I guess there is a, there's a beauty in that as well, that I'm also like, I think trying to un, like unpack for my own self. This is really, I'm just, you know, grappling with the fact that, you know, what experiences inform this need to hide oneself so fervently in these academic spaces? Um, I mean, that's a kind of rhetorical question because I'm sure we like have a very real sense of the answers to that question. But it's really disturbing when you sort of think about um, the effects of having, feeling the need to hide like core aspects of oneself in learning environments in order to survive those spaces or in order to um, perform um, in a certain way and you know the level of discomfort so many of us probably feel in trying to undo that in this moment um, and you know as much as we think about the kinds of knowledge we're producing or receiving in these spaces um, it's when you think about what we lose in these moments as well, the core aspects of ourselves, it's really, um, it's, it's distressing. <laughs> um, the idea that you can't like fully show up as yourself is really um, an indictment on whatever it is that we're doing in these spaces writ large, not necessarily this classroom, although perhaps as well, but um, I don't know, just the idea that you, there's a kind of soullessness <laughs> um, is really distressing. <laughs> it's very distressing. Um, and when you think about how that shows up in other ways in your life, you know, perhaps in your personal relationships with others. One of the things that we talked about um, that I shared was how, um, you know, as someone who's first gen, you know, and positioned in various ways in underrepresented groups, um, feeling like the more I progress on this sort of academic or institutional path, the more estranged I feel from mm -hmm. certain communities. And I think that's a part of what I'm sort of alluding to with like what is lost. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think this is a, a necessity. It doesn't, I don't think it has to be that way, but it seems like it is that way. Um, and that's, I keep saying distressing, but it's so deeply disturbing and sad. And it became more of a discussion of, you know, within this space of academia, who has, you know, the privilege to be able to bring their full selves or people were able to discuss some of the discomforts mm -hmm. of engaging um, 
in this activity where it had to be, they had to be vulnerable. Some of the themes that arose from this were stuck in a vacuum, yeah. situational, time, home, language, drowning again, borders, el nie, loss. Theory is language is uncommunicative. Opportunity, positionality, fear. Can we be humans in the classroom? Multiple identities, other people's perceptions, intergenerational memory, strength and weakness, who defines it? Recreating narratives. Who is afforded vulnerability? What's interesting to me is that it, it became so um, meta in a sense, the words that were generated. Uh, and also many of them thematically tied to an examination of the classroom, an examination of pen. From there, we, we did bring those words into defining kind of some ideas for action that we as a class might want to take. Um, which is a which is a project that is still in formation, but in an effort to do that we were kind of returning to thinking about um, The term that Menon introduced at the beginning praxis. So bringing some of our reflective act reflective actions into um, embodied action So that was week one in the next part of our podcast. We're gonna go through the second week that we led We had this amazing opportunity to collaborate with the Philly Youth Poetry Movement, um, which is a dope nonprofit that provides a space for Philly teens to come together and through spoken word and literary expression, get a chance to discover the power of their voices. And Kai Davis and Lataj Carter of PYPM, they facilitated a poetry workshop with our class where we got to examine two poems, one including the excerpt that was right at the beginning of this podcast that illustrated a black young woman essentially reflecting on and transforming her present reality, um, which is an example of praxis in and of itself. So for the second part of the workshop, we were given the space to write about a moment where we ourselves felt powerless, but we could either imagine, reimagine the outcome or, and give ourselves magical powers to um, address those moments. And Alicia and Menon will now share the poems that they wrote during the workshop. Post 9-11, so I was young then, unsuspecting, or at least without words and concepts to define suspicions. Unsuspecting, we were flying somewhere close by. I can't remember where. I remember the shame when they evacuated the whole plane on account of us, on my brown father and his brown name. Made everyone get off, checked him or something. I can't remember. But my father, he was hurt but he wasn't shamed. Asked if he could take my hand and me and him left the airport and we walked a long way by the sea. He told me how it looked like the waters, 
all the marshy, grassy, blue-green, too expanding inlets like where we're from. And so it was. He told me about shame, said it was okay that I felt it, then helped me breathe it out to the sea. I walk into what was no longer a living room, now a hospital room. My grandmother's unresponsive, unmoving, grade. My father tells us she doesn't have much more time. My sister and I look at each other, unwilling to accept that as fact. In unison, we leap into the air, holding each of my grandmother's hands. The three of us glide through what was once the back door. In the air, we had no blocked exits. Into the backyard we go. We pass the lavender, the collards, the aloe my grandmother had planted, to the top of the yard, the unknown. We lay our grandmother down on the grass, shrouded by trees. We feed her crab cakes and butter rolls, and slowly her hair blackens again. Chocolate cake, and her gaze is again focused. Chitlins, and she can sit up on her own. My sister and I glide down the steps, gathering flowers along the way. We return to our grandmother, drape the flowers along her newly strong body, and the three of us lay there, among the lavender and aloe and quiet, with the world three flights below us. To exist humanly is to name the world to change it. Once named, the world in its turn reappears to the namers as a problem and requires of them a new naming. Human beings are not built in silence, but in word, in work, in action reflection. But while to say the true word, which is work, which is praxis, is to transform the world, saying that word is not the privilege of some few persons, but the right of everyone. Consequently, no one can say a true word alone, nor can she say it for another in a prescriptive act which robs others of their words. So after the workshop, we moved into um, a portion of the class that we wanted to, um, we, our aim was to allow for freedom of movement and freedom of activities. So in the back of the room, we had the arts supplies set up and um, we arranged the classroom in smaller circles. Um, for students to really engage in whatever activity they wanted to in those circles. So we had the art supplies, we had texts out, texts that we drew upon, um, both in planning our sessions and that we asked the class to engage with. We had some yoga mats and um, blankets set up for anyone that wanted to process through movement. And we also had a collective space of large paper um, if anyone in the class wanted to engage in art with other people. We also had an area um, where our professor was facilitating a, a brainstorming session for our class website that we're working to produce um, that'll sort of distill the work that we've been doing for the semester and hopes for future work. Um, and here we drew pretty heavily on um, Bell Hooks' definition of engaged pedagogy. 
Bell Hooks writes, progressive holistic education, engaged pedagogy is more demanding than conventional critical or feminist pedagogy. For unlike these two teaching practices, it emphasizes well-being. That means that teachers must be actively committed to a process of self-actualization that promotes their own well-being if they are to teach in a manner that empowers students. So for me, when I was um, sort of invited to take that space pretty openly, what I decided to do is process um, some through just like sitting. We had done um, a meditation previously in the class as a transitional um, activity. So just sitting and then also some movement because one of the ways that I end up feeling really alienated in classrooms is how sort of strictly I have to remain in my seat and very still for, for um, you know, for hours. <laughs> and so I was able to take that space to process and feel some with movement. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, I chose a few different processing activities. One of them, like Alicia, was movement. Um, I, you know, sat with the yoga mats for a bit and did some stretching because that, you know, is how I choose to process is through stretching my body. <laughs> um, and after that, I, I moved into the art space and um, contributed some to the collective um, piece that some of the classmates were, or some of my, our classmates were working on. Um, and then also helped a bit with Dr. Strong's um, brainstorming session. I primarily was at the arts um, section towards the back of the classroom, or I guess you could say front. It really depends on where spatially you are in the classroom, but I, I processed through drawing and doodling, so with a lot of what was shared and even thinking about my own teaching practices and my own research, I was um, drawing while also reflecting on ways that I could bring some of the practices that we were discussing and experiencing in ways that I could uh, bring incorporate those more into my own uh, my own pedagogy. And I was also um, fig uh, working with the music, so getting people's insight and trying to, you know, create that space of comfort. What song do you remember? Some of the songs you chose? Oh, we had we had Janelle Monae, we had Raven Monae, we had. There were some suggestions that we had I. We SZA. We had SZA. And there were some suggestions of some artists who I wasn't familiar with. I think Kalela mm -hmm. might have been one. And we did have some Drake. Um, you know, <laughs> take that how you feel. Yeah. But. <laughs> but. <laughs> oh, and some Erica. We had some Erica Badus, so. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought some um, these beautiful pastels, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it's just like such vivid colors, and so Larissa and I were sitting at the arts table, um, or at, at the at one of the tables, big white canvas mm -hmm. paper that Larissa had, had brought, and we kind of sat there the whole time. And I think she brought over a book, and I had also brought over a book, and we wrote some quotes on this canvas paper. But also we started to draw um, images of I think the ocean and sand, and I was really inspired by. Um, some of the imagery I'd written in the poem I wrote earlier in that, that class. And so I was trying to like draw out that imagery and the feelings that poem brought up for me. 
And we created an abundance of time too, right? That was something that was really important that we thought about. It was neat to see how there were kind of these different micro circles that broke out in addition to that physical activities that we created. Um, yeah, I thought that was neat. I feel like leaving those two weeks, we lived out critical pedagogy, one in the holistic sense, um, in a dedicate two in a dedication to self-actualization, and three in really disrupting any power dynamics that existed in the space. We kind of really tried hard to embody what we'd read about and what we were hoping people would explore. We did also, you know, face some challenges and have some learning experiences in the ways that we designed this. We were limited to two weeks of a class in a space that's not typically conducive to the kind of praxis we were envisioning. Mm -hmm. um, limited by time, limited by space, limited by, you know, pen as a wider um, uh, experience. <laughs> and it's also complicated to navigate different identities and positionalities that we as group members hear us as well as as a class um, have and are bringing into the space. And a lot of times, you know, in our classes, we feel isolated and we wanted to, we pretty much wanted to um, really exalt cri uh, critical pedagogy's call and effort towards collectivity. We wanted to create a space where we emphasize the community of the class, um, which we recognize and notice can be uncomfortable and even violent um, for some people who may not be used to having the, that opportunity in that particular academic space or just recognizing that that sharing um, and that coming together can be uncomfortable. Uh. Yeah. So in recognizing the challenges and limitations we were facing, um, we also want to call back something that Bell Hooks put forth, which is educators who, quote, embrace the challenge of self-actualization will be better able to create pedagogical practices that engage students, providing them with ways of knowing that enhance their capacity to live fully and deeply.